Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 117. Today's big Bible question, what does peacemaking look like, and why should Christians be peacemakers? So happy Friday, faithful friends. Today's big Bible word is alliteration. Oh, wait, it's actually peacemaking. Everybody knows that Jesus said that the peacemakers are blessed, of course, because they'll be called children of God. But many may not know what it actually means or really practically what it looks like to be a peacemaker. So today we're going to read Numbers chapter 1, Psalms 35, Ecclesiastes 11, and Titus 3, which is one of the best and most practical chapters in the Bible on peacemaking, peacemaking in unity, even if it actually doesn't use the word peacemaker. If we follow the commands in this chapter, we will be a bringer of peace to almost any situation. So when Spurgeon was closing his sermon on the Beatitudes many years ago, I love how he uh, did it and commended the practice of peacemaking to his congregation. And he said this, Are any of you suffering? Let's weep with them. Do we know anyone who has less love than others? Then let us have more love for them so as to make up the deficiency. Do we perceive faults in a brother? Let's admonish him in love and affection. I pray you, says Spurgeon, be peacemakers, everyone. Let the church go on as it has done for the last few years, in holy unity and concord. Let us remember that we cannot keep the unity of the Spirit unless we all believe the truth of God. So let's search our Bibles, therefore, and conform our views and sentiments to the teaching of God's Word. I've already told you, says Spurgeon, that unity in error is unity in ruin. We want unity in the truth of God through the Spirit of God. Let us seek after that. Let us live near Christ, for this is the best way of promoting unity. And here's what, this is important. He says, divisions in churches never begin with those full of love to their Savior. It's usually cold hearts, unholy lives, inconsistent actions, neglected prayer closets, These are the seeds which show schism and disunity in the body. But he who lives near to Jesus wears his likeness and copies his example. He will be, wherever he goes, a sacred bond, a holy link to the church more closely than to link the church or bind the church more closely than ever together. May God give us this and let us endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. In my experience, Spurgeon is absolutely right there. Disunity and peace-breaking almost never begins with those who are full of love for Jesus. If you love the body of Christ, the people of God, you will be unwilling to do anything that could harm them. Christians should do everything possible to maintain unity in the church. That said, we also need to see that this passage in Titus that we're going to read today concerns our conduct and treatment of people in the church and outside of the church. Sometimes I've seen Christians that are a little over-eager to fight, quarrel, argue, and otherwise stir up trouble online with non-believers. Now, I'm not just talking about discussing uh, reasons to believe in the faith or the practice of apologetics or defending the faith. I'm just talking about quarreling and fighting about anything. Politics in particular is something I've noticed a lot. Local political opinions. 
how everybody's handling the coronavirus situation. I see lots of Christians attacking and nitpicking online and really putting some fairly controversial opinions and beliefs out there that are very likely to cause quarrels and that's just your opinion, man. I mean, I'm not saying one way or the other, but that's just your opinion. You're not necessarily basing it on a biblical truth and that kind of thing's gonna could stir up quarrels and dissension and disunity. And I think Titus three might steer us away from that cup, that sort of behavior. Uh, so is your social media, is my social media, is it a sounding board for complaints or disagreements? Do we regularly ignite arguments with our strong opinions online or in real life? Are we prone to getting into quarrels with people who just don't get it and we need to set them straight? Well, I think Titus 3 might have something to say to us. So let's read it and see. Titus chapter 3, I said Titus 2, Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them, says Paul, to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out his Spirit on us, abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by His grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law, because they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning, for you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come see me in Nicopolis, because I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey so that they will lack nothing. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works for pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. All those who are with me send you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with all of you. So let's remember that Titus is part of what's called the pastoral epistles. These are basically letters written by Paul to Timothy and Titus to help them know how to pastor, shepherd, and teach Christians in these young churches that they're leading. And it's very clear that the Holy Spirit, speaking through Paul, is urging peace and unity and the avoidance of fighting, argument, quarrels, etc., because apparently that's critically important facets of any church. Remember back in Timothy, in First and Second Timothy, and also at the beginning of Titus, Paul gives us qualifications for leaders in the church. And one of the qualifications, actually it's spelled out in several different ways, is things like gentleness and the avoidance of quarrels, not being a bully. And, and for instance, uh, 2 Timothy 2, 23 and 24 and 25 says it this way, uh, reject foolish and ignorant disputes because you know they breed quarrels. The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient. 
instructing his opponents with gentleness. So that's one of the qualifications to be uh, a leader in the body of Christ is, hey, you're not allowed to quarrel. No quarreling. You, know, you say, well, what if they're wrong on politics? What if they're wrong on football? What if they're wrong on restaurants? I don't know, whatever. What if they're wrong? Well, you don't handle it by quarreling. You're able to teach. You're patient. You're gentle to everyone. And by the way, verse 25, 2 Timothy 2.25, that includes your opponents. You're gentle with them. So the Lord's servant, which you and I, we're not allowed to quarrel with people. Instead, like I said, gentle and patience, uh, patient with them. Consider all of the peace-loving passages we just read in Titus. I'm going to read through those again. But just listening to them again and again, it's very clear that Paul is ending his letter to Titus with a hope that the church would abound in peace and avoid fighting and controversy and that sort of thing. So Titus 3, 2 and 3, Paul says, don't slander anyone. Avoid fighting, be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. In chapter 3, verse 9, he says, Avoid foolish debates, genealogies and quarrels and disputes about the law because they're unprofitable and worthless. Paul's saying there's some kind of arguments that we can get in, uh, particularly arguments over words and meanings and, and really tight sort of definitions of things. And he says just avoid that kind of stuff because... It, number one, it's unprofitable. That means it doesn't help anybody. Number two, it's worthless. That means it has no intrinsic value. And then he says, verse 10 and 11, this is pretty strong. Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning. Wow. So if somebody's like stirring up trouble and trying to ignite quarrels and things like that, and I know there's some really well-meaning people out there that are doing that, Paul says you, you can't have anything to do with that kind of behavior because it brings disunity and harm. The advice Paul is giving to us is pretty clear, crystal clear. No fighting, no slander, avoid debates, quarrels, and disputes, reject divisive people, be kind, show gentleness to everybody. And, and again, this is not just, this is um, not telling us not to defend our faith, not to have difficult conversations and things like that. But even when we are in a situation where somebody, we're exclaiming the gospel or the resurrection of Jesus or something like that, and they're vehemently disagreeing with us, we can't get into a quarrel. We can't get into a fight. Instead, we teach with gentleness. And this applies to our behavior in church and out of church, with Christians and with everybody. Christians are the last people in the world who should be looking to argue or quarrel online or anywhere about, you know, politics, theology, religions, whatever. We're to be a peace-seeking and peace-loving people. The world has enough um, hurtful debates and quarrels and arguments and disputes, says Paul. Let's not add to it, but rather, let's be gentle. And rather than fuss uh, and fight and debate, instead of that, he says in verse 14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works for pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. So that's a wonderful recipe for being fruitful in the body of Christ. Find out where the needs are. Maybe it's your neighbors. Look, there's needs all around us in this hour. Maybe it's the homeless guy a few streets over. Maybe it's the family just struggling right now. Paul says, find out what the needs are and do good works for pressing needs, and then you'll be fruitful. Now, I don't know if you've heard of the word forbearance. It's a great word, forbearance. 
F-O-R-B-E-A-R-A-N-C-E. It's not used very frequently anymore, except mainly in debt relief in some legal uh, kind of context. It's almost kind of an archaic word. It means to refrain from exercising a legal right, especially to refrain from enforcing a debt that's owed to you. In a Christian sense, when we practice forbearance with each other, we're being graceful, overlooking offenses, and the need for somebody to pay us back if they've slighted us somehow. Pastor John Piper tells us in this little snippet, which uh, I think we'll close with, how the practice of forbearance is helpful to go along with what we're talking about today in terms of being peacemakers and unity builders. And this is what John Piper says, Paul pleads with the church to walk worthy of our calling. Specifically, the way he wants to emphasize is that we be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We walk unworthily of our calling in Christ if we disregard the unity of the body and don't expend any effort to safeguard what Christ died to obtain. Be diligent, Paul says. Be eager. Be earnest to keep the unity given by the Spirit of God and obtained with the blood of Christ. This is Paul's prison burden for the church at Ephesus. If we have any empathy for a suffering saint, it should make us say, yes, this is utterly crucial. How, Brother Paul, how should we do this? How should we walk in this peace? And his answer is found in verse 2. The character traits that will preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace are humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance. There's that word, overlooking offense, and love. So he says that a life worthy of our calling and leading to unity of the Spirit is with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. If you are humble, says Piper, you will be gentle. And if you are patient, you will be forbearing or enduring. And if you are gentle and forbearing in love, you will be a peacemaker and a unity preserver. So be diligent and eager to be a humble and patient person by the power of Christ. And guys, let's let's take that as a challenge and as the word of God that we would abound in humility and gentleness and forbearance, not insisting on our own rights, but instead sowing peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. I want to be a child of God. I want to walk in that kind of peace. I want to extend it to everybody, even those who might be opponents of mine. I I want that. I think the Word of God calls us to that. And when we're all walking in that way, just like this mask thing, we're in a place right now in uh, the county of Monterey where I live, city of Salinas, uh, we're hearing that they're about to make it uh, mandatory, probably this week, that whenever you go outside, you got to wear a mask. And and so some people might say, well, those masks aren't going to protect me from getting sick. There's there's truth to that. They won't. Here's That's not the purpose of wearing a mask, though. The purpose of wearing a mask is to protect other people from me getting them sick. Since, you know, this coronavirus thing, you can be asymptomatic and not even know you have symptoms. Well, if everybody's wearing a mask, the masks aren't particularly effective at keeping the viruses from you, but they are very effective at keeping you from spreading your germs when you cough or sneeze to everybody else. So if everybody's wearing a mask, you're going to drop the contagious rate of the coronavirus like way low, and eventually it's going to be snuffed out. And you'll see what's happening in 
a lot of the Asian countries who already do that, like South Korea, you're going to see infection rates plummet. I don't want to wear a mask, but the science is pretty clear that it will help. In the same way, whatever, you don't you don't have to agree with me on mask wearing, but I think you do have to agree with me on this. In the same way, if all of us are peacemakers, it will protect all of us, the whole body, the whole people, from divisive arguments and quarrels and the kind of things that kind of tear into our heart and separate close friends and hurt people. So if we're all going around being peacemakers and wearing the mask of peacemaking, then it's going to raise the level of peace in our church and our family and in our city. And I think that is a good thing. All right, let's get into the word of God. Numbers chapter 1, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the wilderness of Sinai on the first day of the second month of the second year after Israel's departure from the land of Egypt. Take a census of the entire Israelite community by their clans and their ancestral families, counting the names of every male one by one. You and Aaron are to register those who are 20 years old or more by their military divisions, everyone who can serve in Israel's army. A man from each tribe is to be with you, each one with the head of his ancestral family. These are the names of the men who are men who are to assist you: Elazar, son of Shedor from Reuben; Shalumiel, son of Zerishadai from Simeon; Nashan, son of Amminadab from Judah; Nathanael, son of Zuar from Issachar; Eliab, son of Helon from Zebulon; from the sons of Joseph; Elashema, son of Amihud. From Ephraim, Gamaliel, son of Petalitzer, from Manasseh, Abadan, son of Gideani, from Benjamin, Ahiezer, son of Amashadai, from Dan, Pigiel, son of Okran, from Asher, Eliasaph, son of Deuel, from Gad, and Ahira, son of Enan, from Naphtali. These are the men called from the community. They are leaders of their ancestral tribes, the heads of Israel's clans. So Moses and Aaron took these men who had been designated by name, and they assembled the whole community on the first day of the second month. They recorded their ancestry by their clans and their ancestral families, counting one by one the names of those twenty years old or more, just as the Lord commanded Moses. He registered them in the wilderness of Sinai. The descendants of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, according to their family records, by their clans and their ancestral families, counting one by one the names of every male 20 years old or more, everyone who could serve in the army. Those registered for the tribe of Reuben numbered 46,500. The descendants of Simeon, according to their family records by their clans and their ancestral families, those registered, counting one by one the names of every male 20 years old or more, everyone who could serve in the army, those registered for the tribe of Simeon numbered 59,300. The descendants of Gad, According to their family records by their clans and their ancestral families, counting the names of those 20 years old or more, everyone who could serve in the army, those registered for the tribe of Gad, numbered 45,650. The descendants of Judah, according to their family records by their clans and their ancestral families, counting the names of those 20 years old or more, everyone who could serve in the army, those registered for the tribe of Judah, numbered 74,600. The descendants of Issachar, according to their family records, by their clans and their ancestral families, counting the names of those twenty years old or more, everyone who could serve in the army, 
Those registered for the tribe of Issachar numbered 54,400. The descendants of Zebulon, according to their family records by their clans and their ancestral families, counting the names of those 20 years old or more, everyone who could serve in the army, those registered for the tribe of Zebulon numbered 57,400. The descendants of Joseph, the descendants of Ephraim, according to their family records by their clans and their ancestral families, counting the names of those 20 years old or more, everyone who could serve in the army, those registered for the tribes of Ephraim numbered 40,500. The descendants of Manasseh, according to their family records by their clans and their ancestral families, counting the names of those 20 years old or more, everyone who could serve in the army, those registered to the tribe of Manasseh numbered 32,200. The descendants of Benjamin, according to their family records by their clans and their ancestral families, counting the names of those 20 years old or more, every one who would serve in the army, those registered for the tribe of Benjamin numbered 35,400. The descendants of Dan, according to their family records by their clans and their ancestral families, counting the names of those 20 years old or more, everyone who could serve in the army, those registered for the tribe of Dan numbered 62,700. The descendants of Asher, according to their family records by their clans and their ancestral families, counting the names of those 20 years old or more, everyone who could serve in the army, those registered for the tribe of Asher numbered 41,500. The descendants of Naphtali, according to their family records by their clans and their ancestral families, counting the names of those 20 years old or more, everyone who could serve in the the army, those registered for the tribe of Naphtali, numbered 53,400. These are the men Moses and Aaron registered with the assistance of the 12 leaders of Israel, each represented by his ancestral family. So all the Israelites, 20 years old or more, everyone who could serve in Israel's army, were registered by their ancestral families. All those registered numbered 603,550. But the Levites were not registered with them by their ancestral tribe. For the Lord had told Moses, Do not register or take a census of the tribe of Levi with the other Israelites. Appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, all its furnishings and everything in it. They are to transport the tabernacle and all its articles, take care of it, and camp around it. Whenever the tabernacle is to move, the Levites are to take it down, and whenever it is to stop at a campsite, the Levites are to set it up. Any unauthorized person who comes near it is to be put to death. The Israelites are to camp by their military divisions, each man with his encampment and under his banner. The Levites are to camp around the tabernacle of the testimony and watch over it so that no wrath will fall on the Israelite community. The Israelites did everything just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Ecclesiastes chapter 11 verse 1. Send your bread on the surface of the water, for after many days you may find it. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you don't know what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full, then they will pour out rain on the earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or the north, the place in which the tree falls, there it will lie. One who watches the wind will not sow, and the one who looks at the clouds will not reap. Just as you don't know the path of the wind or how bones develop in the wound of a pregnant woman, so also you don't know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening do not let your hand rest, because you don't know which will succeed, whether one or the other, or if both of them will be equally good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasing for the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, if someone lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, and let him remember the days of darkness, since they will be many. All that comes is futile. Rejoice, young person, while you are young, and let your heart be glad in the days of your youth. And walk in the ways of your heart and in the desire of your eyes. But know that for all these things God will bring you to judgment. Remove sorrow from your heart and put away pain from your flesh. Because youth and the prime of life are fleeting. Psalm chapter 35 verse 1. Oppose my opponents, Lord. Fight those who fight me. Take your shields, large and small, and come to my aid. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers and assure me 
that I am your deliverance. Let those who intend to take my life be disgraced and humiliated. Let those who plan to harm me be turned back and be ashamed. Let them be like chaff chaff in the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. They hid their net for me without cause. They dug a pit for me without cause. Let ruin come on them unexpectedly and let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his ruin. Then I will rejoice in the Lord. I will delight in his deliverance. All my bones will say, Lord, who is like you? Rescuing the poor from one too strong for him. The poor are the needy from one who robs him. Malicious witnesses come forward. They question me about things I do not know. They repay me evil for good, making me desolate. Yet when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself with fasting, and my prayer was genuine. I went about mourning as if for my friend or brother. I was bowed down with grief like one mourning for a mother. But when I stumbled, they gathered in glee. They gathered against me. Assailants I did not know tore at me and did not stop. With godless mockery, they gnashed their teeth at me. Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue me from their ravages. Rescue my precious life from the young lions. I will praise you in the great assembly. I will exalt you among the many people. Do not let my deceitful enemies rejoice over me. Do not let those who hate me without cause wink at me maliciously. For they do not speak in friendly ways, but contrive fraudulent schemes against those who live peacefully in the land. They open their mouths wide against me and say, Aha, we saw it. You saw it, Lord. Do not be silent. Lord, do not be far from me. Wake up and rise to my defense, to my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, Lord, my God, in keeping with your righteousness, and do not let them rejoice over me. Do not let them say in their hearts, Aha, just what we wanted. Do not let them say we've swallowed him up. Let those who rejoice at my misfortune be disgraced and humiliated. Let those who exalt themselves over me be clothed with shame and reproach. Let those who want my vindication shout for joy and be glad. Let them continually say, The Lord be exalted. He takes pleasure in his servant's well-being. And my tongue will proclaim your righteousness, your praise all day long. Indeed, Lord be exalted. Thank you, friends, for listening. May the word of God edify and build you up. God bless you and Godspeed.